This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Morning. Thank you uh, for asking me to come here this morning. Um, I have no, nothing to uh, disclose this morning. Uh, for those of you who still want to go out and get some more coffee, I'll start with a summary. Uh, there's a lot more diabetes. There are actually fewer complications, and with newer medications, this is probably going to lead to even fewer complications, but it's not likely that it'll put any of you out of business very soon. I think all of you probably recognize this kind of grouping of slides. It just shows the United States how over the past decade there's ever more obesity and concurrent with that ever more diabetes. And this continues on through this day. If you want to look at where the worst situation is, it's in the southeast. We're not so bad out here on the west coast. Around the world, it's getting worse. First in the United States, if we look at where things have been in 2015, and then the estimate moving forward to 2040, so you can see 29 million currently, Estimated 35 million, about a 20% increase over the next few years, a couple decades. Uh, the worst, uh, as far as total numbers, would be China, where there's going to estimated almost a 38% increase. Um, and then India, you can see, is 69 million, going up to 123 million, a 78% increase. And uh, to our south, Mexico, going from 11 million, 20 million, a 79% increase estimate. So diabetes is exploding, just as the title kind of talks about. Just because you want to be current, this was on NPR in the last couple days, talking about how diabetes become the number one killer in Mexico. It's a little hard to see these little lines, but... The top line is the increase in obesity in the United States. We seem to be the worst. Uh, but right underneath is an increase in obesity in Mexico. And with that, the same increase in diabetes that hadn't been there previously. Uh, to move it to vascular, in a sense, this was one of the quotes in, in the uh, news article. And it talked about, as diabetes took its final toll on his mother... He watched as she spent thousands of pesos on useless, he thinks possibly even toxic, herbs and injections after both her feet had been amputated, and the doctors were only offering palliative care. Salesmen came along offering magical injections, alleging that they would give her relief. So the problem is, around the world, that the treatment for diabetes itself is really lagging and is a lot different than what we're doing in the United States, as we'll talk about. If we look, take this back to California, just look at who gets diabetes, uh, and look at the ethnicity and race. The greatest uh, risk is in the Hispanic population, going along with almost what I just mentioned for Mexico, uh, then African American, American Indian, Asian Pacific, and then non-Hispanic white. This is truly a frightening slide, if you think about it. This was uh, from a few years ago, 
looking about the estimated lifetime risk for someone to develop diabetes for people born in the year 2000. So if you are a Hispanic female, your lifetime risk is over 50% for developing diabetes. You can see all the averages are fairly high. And nothing has really changed this in the past few years. So why is this all happening? Uh, it goes back probably to saying that what you should do is what your mother told you, to eat right and exercise. Um, but it's a little bit more than that. It has to go with uh, genetic predisposition. There are a lot of different theories on this, thrifty gene theory, thrifty gene drift, all sorts of underlying uh, uh, genetic dispositions. Um, this is one instance. We'll look at uh, South Asian, Southeast Asians and look at the pathogenesis there. So at birth, they found that there's increased insulin in cord blood. And then when this group of patients, of, of people later on in life are challenged, they're given five days of a high-fat, high-carb diet, um, and then look at insulin-stimulated glucose disposal, uh, it causes a rapid induction of insulin re resistance in this population compared to um, Caucasians. And in India, just to make this make the case, is over the past decades, there's been an increase in high fat, high carb. So the total intake of fat is increased by seven grams in rural areas, six grams in uh, urban areas. There's increased in, uh, uh, intake of high carb, uh, refined carbs, high glycemic loads in this population, and this is all leading to this explosion of diabetes in this genetically susceptible population. And you see this same thing, whether it's in the Mauritian Islands, where diabetes is now prevalent of about 60%. You look in um, American Indians, so again in the Pima Indians, where before 1900 no one had diabetes, now it's 60 to 70%. And it all has to do with genetic background, changes in diet and exercise that affects them because of that genetic background. So we know a lot more people have diabetes, what's been going on with treatment, and some outcomes. So this is going back to 1987, which is when I started seeing patients after fellowship. And at that time, basically, we were treating patients with a lot of insulin and not so much pills because all we had were uh, sulfonylurea agents. So there wasn't a lot of options at that time. And hemoglobin A1Cs were really high, if anyone actually checked. By 1995, we had metformin that was on the market in the United States. Suddenly, we we're using less insulin, more metformin and sulfonylureas, and hemoglobin A1Cs improved. By 1999, we started to have uh, thiazolidinediones on the market, now, lots of patients were on multiple oral agents, fewer patients were on insulin, and hemoglobin A1Cs were improved yet again. By 2004, uh, we were starting to use combinations much more of insulin plus oral agents, and again, hemoglobin A1Cs improved. And by about 2014, when the next changes in medications came out, so we have incretin drugs that's, that... Um, had been on the market for a few years, we saw that now people were on injections of insulin, injections of GLP-1 agonists, 
and oral agents, so people would be on three to five to six different medications for their diabetes, and hemoglobin A1Cs improved yet again. So this didn't make any difference. Again, this looking at this just a little bit differently over the same period of time. In the 1980s, we had sulfonylureas and insulin. Hemoglobin A1C target was really just to be under 9, and this was before any of the data came out saying that, indeed, controlling blood sugars actually made a difference. You know, that, this wasn't dogmatic in, until just a few years ago. I mean, all of us kind of take that to be, you know, gospel, but there was nothing to back that up until just a few years ago. So then by the, the 1990s, after the diabetes control and complication trial in type 1 diabetes showed that, indeed, controlling blood sugars re- reduced microvascular disease by about 60%. Um, the goal was now to hemoglobin A1C under 8. Metformin was available. And if you looked around the country with, to see what the average hemoglobin A1C was, it was about 7.7%. By 1997, we had the thiazolidine diones. We had now a type 2 study, the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, that had similar outcomes to the um, DCCT and type 1s, showing improved outcomes for microvascular disease. The goal was now 7%. Um, overall, we were about 7.9. By 2006, we now had incretins, so the GLP-1s, DPP-4 inhibitors, and the average out there was 7.2. The goal was people were saying should be 6. No one could believe that because it was impossible to attain. But nevertheless, that was the goal that was being talked about. And then by 2014, again, hemoglobin A1C averaged about 7.2. We had all these other drugs. People were now worried about hypoglycemia, worsening outcomes. We'll talk about that. And the goal actually was finally making some sense because now it was whatever is appropriate for that specific patient. So what a lot of us had been talking about that for years and years and years, now it's actually the official goal is what is specific for that patient based on lifespan expectancy, comorbidities, and so forth. So what about complications during all this time? Um, More people have diabetes. More pe- so there are more people overall with complications. But if you look at the percentage of complications in people with diabetes, there was increasing, ever so. And now for the past couple decades, it's slowly decreasing. So the percent of people with, this is end-stage renal disease, has been decreasing. The percentage of people uh, with diabetes with eye problems is decreasing. And the percentage of people with cardiovascular disease is decreasing. So the top line is acute myocardial infarctions in people with diabetes, and that is decreasing. Then people with stroke, it's decreasing. Amputation, slowly decreasing. Um, so actually, there are more, more overall complications as far as total population, but as a percentage of people with diabetes in the United States, uh, it's decreasing. So there is actually impact. This is looking at lower extremity amputations in the United States. A little hard to kind of figure out what this means, but if we look over time, there, there's a decrease overall in amputations, and the main thing is their decrease in upper, low, in, in the, um, 
upper sort of extremity, low, lower extremity, more proximal amputations, not much difference in the distal amputations. Okay. Now, as far as the research showing impact here, uh, we have multiple studies. These are the big five studies that have been done. Uh, the UKPDS in type 2, Accord Advance and VADT in type 2, and the DCCT and EDIC in type 1. And they all have similar outcomes. They all show with improved blood sugars, you decrease microvascular disease, perhaps flat or improvement in cardiovascular disease, and most are flat or improvement in mortality except for Accord, which we'll talk about. So Accord was this big study looking at cardiovascular outcomes in type 2 diabetes, lots of patients, macrovascular disease. They were put on multiple drugs to try to reduce their blood sugar. The control group was, um, had hemoglobin A1Cs about 8. In the uh, goal for improvement was 6.5. Um, bottom line was death from any cause was increased in the tightly controlled group. It turns out, though, that the people with the increased risk for dying were people in the tight control group who, despite being on all these drugs, didn't improve their blood sugars. So it's not quite the headline. Uh, what is probably more interesting is if you look at secondary analysis and look at people who had no cardiovascular disease, if they were on tighter control, they had better outcomes. If people had better blood sugars to begin with and were maintained on better blood sugars throughout, they had better cardiovascular outcomes. And if you take everything together, you throw in blood sugar control, blood pressure control, and, and cholesterol levels in the Steno study over several decades, you have improved cardiovascular outcomes that are quite dramatic, including decreased amputations and, and so forth. So the take-home is, yeah, all these things, all the improvements in glucoses um, and cholesterol and blood pressure control have made dramatic improvements in outcome uh, to date. They certainly don't decrease, have, haven't eliminated complications, but they're decreasing. Now, there are a lot of different drugs for diabetes. Let me spend like two minutes not to go through all these drugs, but to tell you what's interesting about drugs at this moment in time. So we have all these areas where there are defects for, that help um, bring about type 2 diabetes, and there are drugs that work at every single place along the way, and we use all of these on a day-to-day -day basis to try to improve outcomes. Whoops. Uh, let's see. I think I went the wrong way. There we go. So let's start with a sulfonylureas. Sulfonylureas have been out the longest. Uh, they're used um, by most uh, uh, physicians out there, and they're probably the one class that lead to the worst outcomes. Um, and this is an example of why. So this is looking at cardiac out effects of sulfonylureas. And sulfonylureas in patients who actually, in which the sulfonylureas are working, have hypoglycemia. This is looking at patients who had continuous glucose monitoring. They, uh, that picks up blood sugars every five minutes. And a third of the patients had hypoglycemia. Most of this is asymptomatic and at night. And it led to QT pro prolongation, higher QT dynamicity. Um, and this is associated with poor cardiovascular outcomes. And this is just one of the studies that shows that have worse outcomes with cardiovascular disease, potentially with sulfonylurea agents. The thiazolidinediones have been out for a long time. There's a lot of data 
and misinterpretation of data that they worsen cardiovascular outcomes a while back. Bottom line is they have improved glucose, improved blood pressure, improved CRP levels. There are several studies that show in patients with and without diabetes that if they're given to patients who have stents, you, have improved, you reduce stent failure. So they have a lot of interesting outcomes. The problem is they cause significant weight gain, peripheral edema, and maybe congestive heart failure at times. So not our favorite drugs overall, plus uh, bone loss. Nevertheless, a really interesting study that was recently done looking at pioglitazone after ischemic stroke, or TIA. They gave this to patients who had insulin resistance but no diabetes in a randomized study. And the bottom line is the patients who were on pioglitazone had a prolonged, greater cumulative event-free survival time than the patients on placebo. So it was improved outcomes. The problem was, of course, these patients had, again, more weight gain, um, more, some increased bone fractures, increased peripheral edema. So everything that comes good, there's a dark side. The incretin drugs have been out for a number of years. These are the GLP-1s and um, the DPP-4 inhibitors. Uh, these are all like GLP-1 agonists. Um, there are an incredible number that are on the market, and they're ever-increasing. These are the pills. These are the injections. And it's a little hard to see because you need a microscope to see the differences, even in the actual paper when it's clearly in front of you. But this is looking at liraglutide as one of the GLP-1 agonists, and it showed that, indeed, when this is added to the regimen, there were slight improvements in cardiovascular outcome. Again, we're looking for anything we can get from the medications that improve cardiovascular outcomes, and this is beyond you know, just the glucose control. Uh, the newest class have been out for a few years now. These are the uh, renal glucose reabsorption drugs, the SGLT2 drugs. What happens is sodium glucose transporter 2 plays a role in glucose metabolism, um, and re there's an increased reabsorption of glucose in type 2 diabetes. You inhibit this, you dump glucose in the urine. Um, so the rationale is you inhibit reabsorption of, of the glucose in the proximal tubule. You have glucosuria, leads to lowering blood sugars, reversal of some glucose toxicity. It's simple. It's nonspecific. It doesn't matter whether the patient has insulin resistance or not. And Theoretically, any patient should respond to this type of treatment. And indeed, the patients do well. They have significant lowering of blood sugars. There is weight loss. There's low risk of hypoglycemia. It lowers their blood pressure, and it's independent of insulin use. Of course, the patients can have polyuria. You can have electrolyte disturbances. There's increased risk of bacterial UTIs and fungal genital infections, mainly in women, and something called euglycemic decay, which we won't talk about right now. What is interesting is this class definitely shows when it's added to the regimen, decreased cardiovascular events and decreased hospitalization for congestive heart, heart failure beginning within weeks of starting the medication. Uh, and this actually now has a FDA indication for cardiovascular disease, first diabetes medication for that. Of course, there's a dark side to these drugs. A little tick that they found 
that hasn't been published yet shows that there seems to be an increased risk for lower limb amputations in patients on the drugs. Uh, this has, and, and this is with the toes specifically. And so there's a slight increase compared to placebo. No one really understands it at this point, but uh, we'll have to see where this leads. In addition, these drugs cause bone loss. Um, and it may be significant when people start taking this for years and years and years, and we'll have to wait and see. So with that, what's the only safe way to really treat this epidemic? And that, of course, is not to develop it in the first place, because once you develop it, we're dealing with all these drugs and so forth. So with that, people go to the YMCA. And in fact, there is a diabetes... uh, study that was on the diabetes prevention program that was published a couple decades ago that showed when you had intensive treatment uh, with lectures and exercise and diet intervention, you reduced the onset of diabetes by about 60%. And this started to be funded at uh, YMCA specifically a few year, couple, just a couple years ago uh, to put into action. And actually starting in 2018, Medicare is paying for this as an actual program to prevent diabetes. At least we think it will be funded. Who knows? So this is, you know, the algorithm for treating type 2 diabetes these days. It's sort of all these different medications. Each one has a potential benefit, potential risk. But the point is we're starting to mix and match drugs a little bit differently so that we no longer, so that we can now potentially really prevent complications rather than just uh, treating blood sugars. Thank you very much. That was was wonderful. I think we do have time for maybe one or two questions. That was a great um, uh, introduction to really the the global health issues and um, the uh, epidemic of diabetes worldwide. Could you just, in your, um, where you see the, the treatment for diabetes going for the patients that have it, maybe 10 years, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, proliferation of uh, oral agents. Um, do you think uh, continuous glucose monitoring and insulin pump is, the, is where the field should go, or are we just kind of waiting for a cell-based therapy to kind of emerge and kind of um, give us a better control on the, the, what's going on at the... Right, it depends on, uh, yeah, it depends on what type of diabetes people have. I think things are breaking a couple different ways. For type 2 diabetes, the treatment is moving towards um, drugs that don't cause weight gain, that cause weight loss, that don't cause hypoglycemia. So that means people are on metformin and then on SGLT2 medications, maybe with and GLP-1 agonists, because they all will cause weight loss, won't cause hypoglycemia, have potential cardiovascular improvements. So everyone likes that thing. The issue there is you're now talking about potentially up to $700 a month just for the diabetes medications beyond everything else. So because the only drug there that's uh, generic is metformin. Everything else is high cost. Um, Moving towards we have continuous glucose monitoring that as of this week uh, is about to, or is about to be paid for the next week uh, for all type, all patients on multiple insulin shots on Medicare. Um, so we get a blood sugar every five minutes. It'll drive many of the patients crazy who don't really need it, but uh, it, it gives us a lot more information. And all of a sudden, we're going to be seeing all these blood sugars that are high all the time 
or low all the time and be able to make better interventions. Uh, who really needs that remains to be seen. On the same time, we have ever more uh, smart insulin pumps, and those are mainly for type 1, but over time, some type 2 patients. And the, ty- and the insulin pumps uh, that are either about to go into use, as actually going into use as of about a week ago, and more over the next year and a half are somewhat smart. So they automatically will um, adjust for the patient's basal doses. So the person doesn't really have to, doesn't have to make any adjustments. The pump automatically makes all those adjustments based on the continuous glucose monitoring. Um, over the next couple of years, we'll get smarter pumps that will actually take care of the meals, but we're not quite there yet. So over time, smarter pumps, smaller pumps, the continuous glucose monitoring is all moving ahead. Probably not the best treatment for all these type 2 diabetics because they'll go on these pumps and gain weight. So that won't actually help them. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.